it was like traveling with Michael Jackson, you know what I mean? Or like the Beatles or something like that. Right? And, and it's, we would go to a town and literally there would be thousands of people, you know, waiting for us. And I saw people like look at him and like start crying. Like in the old like Michael Jackson videos, like they would just start crying or they would touch him and like faint. And we were, we were just looking like, wow. This We're just about 24 hours away from the highly anticipated ESPN series, The Last Dance, which highlights Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls in their final season. I'm Mikey Domagala, host of Inside Buzz, and for episode 11, it's only fitting that we have somebody on who knows Michael Jordan best. Eton Thomas was a four-year star at Syracuse University before spending nine years in the NBA. He played with the Atlanta Hawks, the Oklahoma City Thunder, and of course, to start his career with the Michael Jordan-led Washington Wizards. Eton Thomas is way more than an athlete, though. He's a poet, he's a writer, an inspirational speaker, an activist, and a radio show host. Eton does it all. Eton, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. First off, Eton, I just wanted to say before we start, I really hope you and your family are staying safe and well in this quarantine. How are you guys doing? Good. You know, we haven't left the house. <laughs> we literally, I went up to Syracuse for uh, um, John Wallace's retirement ceremony, like at the end of February. And that was the last time I left the house. So we've just really been literally in the house. We order our groceries, we, you know, we're homeschooling, we're, we're just here. That's good to hear. And Etan, you know, this is a long time coming. Back in January, you know, I'm, I was very lucky to come on your ESPN radio show, Centers of Attention. You know, we spoke about the NBA, my career, NBA buzz and all that stuff. So I'm really excited for this episode, man. Thanks again for giving me that platform back in January. Oh, no, it was great. I mean, it's great discussion. Um, you know, and it, it was, it was, you know, it's good that, that we have these outlets to kind of keep going throughout this time. And you do a lot of tremendous work. I mean, you see, I, I repost yourself all the time. So, yeah, it's an honor to have to be on your show. <laughs> Eton, as I said in the introduction, we're about 24 hours away from the highly anticipated ESPN Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. You know, how will today's NBA fan base, it's a little different than the fan base in the 90s, how will they take this documentary? It's interesting, because I don't really know what they're gonna show. You know, I, I saw MJ was on an interview and he said that, you know, after this documentary, a lot of people are gonna look at him negatively. You know, and it's interesting, because remember, I played with MJ for two years while he was with the Wizards. And so I saw him at the very end. So I, I'm interested to see everything that's in it. I mean, I'll be watching the whole thing with my son, I'm sure, like everybody else. And, you know, I have no idea really what it's going to show um, in his journey. You know, we've all seen Docs before. You know, I, I grew up when I was little and I got Come Fly With Me. That was way before your time. But that was like the first video. I saw. So, you know, from there till now, there's been a lot of different documentaries, but this one seems to be a little bit special. So I'm, I'm interested to see uh, see what it has in it. And remember, since that, you know, since that last documentary, which is your favorite, social media came about, the NBA is changing. So, like, with social media, how's, how are they going to react to MJ? It's going to be extremely interesting. It's going to be really interesting. I, I think that, you know, social media changes everything. So it's going to be, and also there's nothing, there's no sports right now. So this is going to be the main focus. So you're going to see a lot of buzz from it, um, you know, and we'll see, we'll see. We'll see what it covers and what it brings out. And Eton, set the stage for me here. You spent four years at Syracuse. You come into the NBA as a rookie, and Michael Jordan's on your team. What were your first interactions with MJ, and how was that relationship over those two seasons? 
Oh, it was crazy. You know, it was like, and I tell people, it was like traveling with Michael Jackson. You know what I mean? Or like the Beatles or something like that. And it's, we would go to a town and literally there would be thousands of people, you know, waiting for us. And I saw people like look at him and like start crying. Like, you know, like Michael Jackson, <laughs> I was like, they would just start crying or they would touch him and like faint. And we were, we were just looking like, wow, this, because after a while, you know, we got used to him. We see him every single day. We're practicing with him. We're doing film sessions. We're playing, you know, every single day. So we got used to him. But then when we left and we traveled, that's when we really was like, okay, yeah, now this is different. Like he couldn't go to regular places. I remember one time we were, we were going to Cleveland and they had to shut down the whole mall because he wanted to go and, you know, he wanted to go out to eat. So literally they shut down the whole mall and we went through the back and there were still people all around trying to, you know, get a glimpse of him and stuff like that. It's just, it was just a really different type of living. You know, it was, it was a lot. I, I don't know if I would have wanted all of that because he couldn't do anything regular. He couldn't go to like the grocery store or like <laughs> go and get some gas or, you know, go through the drive-through or Chick-fil-A. He couldn't do none of that. Exactly. I mean, if you look at those mega stars like a Michael Jackson, they couldn't go anywhere. They used to have to shut down groceries so we could go grocery shopping if we really wanted to. You know, it's like that's the price of fame. But but how did MJ handle all that stuff? MJ was cool. Like, now, this is the thing, though. If you ask 10 people, you'll probably get 10 different descriptions. And my description with MJ, my interaction with him was always really positive. I mean, I was kind of quiet, you know, my, my, my rookie year. I'm there and I see, you know, it's, it's Papa Jones and Oakley and all those guys my first two years. So I was really just quiet, just watching. So, you know, my interactions with him was really more one-on-one. -on -one. You know, we would talk kind of, you know, we one-on-one -on -one in the training room or something like that. But um, yeah, all positive. I, I don't have a negative thing to say about him for my interaction. But like I said, you ask somebody else, they'll say something different. <laughs> it, it all depends on who you're going to come across and you know, maybe who got punched in the face in practice, you know? <laughs> and Eton, this is a fan question from, you know, NBA Buzz Facebook. I, I kind of laid out some questions to, to have you. Um, you saw the 38 to 40-year-old MJ in practice every day. Was he still training as hard as he was in his prime? And did he still have that cutthroat, you know, mentality in practice? Definitely did, but his body was different. He had a 40-year-old body. So sometimes I remember one time and we was in the training room and, you know, his knee would swell up after games sometimes and he would have to get him drained. <clears throat> and to that point, that was the nastiest thing I'd ever seen. So I'm sitting there with, and, you know, in the training room, just getting some ice or stem or something like that. And, you know, they, they, they come in and his knee is swollen, looks like, like the elephant man or something like that. So they come out with this big needle and they drain it in like this black tar goo looking stuff came out and I'm sitting there looking at him. This is the second year. Um, and I'm sitting there looking at him and I'm, I asked him, I was like, why are you doing this? Like, honestly, you don't have to play. You're MJ. Like, why are you even doing this? And, it's, and he looked at me and he just kind of shook his head. Like he didn't have an answer. And then he went back to looking at his knee, you know, but he, so his body was just different, but he, as far as the drive, the push, everything like that, he had all that. I mean, he was so competitive you know, every day of practice, if we're doing a scrimmage, like just a little scrimmage to, you know, to five, to something like that, he wanted to win. Like uh, it was, yeah, it, but it was, it was just older. So Etan, you know, we saw the 40 year old MJ score 50 points in the somewhat modern NBA. It was changing around that time a little bit. 
Um, what would a prime MJ average today? People don't think he could hang in this era. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, he would dominate in this era. I mean, because the defense is different. So people have to, like, I was watching with my son, Malcolm. I've been watching old, old games and stuff like that when my son says, because there's nothing on. So we're watching um, when he was going against the Pistons and they had the MJ rules. And every time he went into the lane, it was like, pow! Like, you know what I mean? Like a hard foul, not like a little touch foul, like a hard foul, all fouls that all would have been flagrants in this day and age. And he had to figure it out. So in this day and age where you can't even touch someone, <laughs> I mean, he would. how would you guard him? Like, he would be impossible to guard. So he would just come in and, like, you think Giannis is a problem? MJ right now, I mean, it would be amazing. So that – I can't even imagine MJ right now in this where people can't guard him. You can't, you can't check him. You can't hard foul him. You can't do anything. Yeah, I can't even imagine that. Along with that, what I tell people, you know, I'm a huge MJ fan. I tell people he, would, he has a mentality that he would develop an insane three-pointer because that's just the way of the game. So add a three-pointer in there. You can't touch him. I see, I see 40 points per game from MJ in today's era. Oh, no question. I'd say 50. <laughs> I would say 50 points a game. And the year after MJ retired, you had a career best season, averaging 8.9 points per game, 6.7 rebounds per game, and 1.6 blocks per game. What exactly clicked that year? Um, Doug Collins got fired. <laughs> that was really basically it. <laughs> Doug Collins got fired. They started all over. You know, they went younger guys. Um, you know, Eddie Jordan came in, and he said, the best guys are going to play. You have a clean slate. And you show me, and he made that announcement at the beginning, so I just played my way into the lineup, and it just kind of took off from there. Uh, I think before with MJ, uh, he was more comfortable with veteran guys. So that's where we got, you know, Popeye Jones and um, Charles Oakley and Leitner and, you know, Zach. They, that's who he was more comfortable with, which I understand it because it was really like, a, you know, the, the age different, the age gap. It was amazing because you had young cats, they just had older cats. I won't call them old, but older cats, you know? So the person who I really felt bad for was Kwame. Um, because Kwame, when he came into the league, he was the best person in the draft, hands down. It wasn't close. I saw it with my own two eyes. They brought in all the top big men, right? This is right at the Verizon Center. They brought them all in. He went against Tyson Chandler. He went against Eddie Curry, you know, and he destroyed all of them. Like, it wasn't even close. Like, it wasn't even close. And, you know, coming there and having the pressure of, of playing next to MJ and really Doug Collins. Like, you know, I mean, Kwame won't say it now, but I can say it because I was there. Doug Collins, you know, it was almost like he had a personal vendetta against Kwame. You know, like I would text him after sometimes. I'd be like, are you all right, man? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know why he's going at you so hard. Like, he wanted to almost take his confidence. But it was really, if things didn't go right, he wanted to blame somebody and not blame MJ. That's what I think. So Kwame got all the blame, you know, and it was just, it was messed up. But, you know, and, but playing with MJ, Kwame would, would watch MJ and watch his habits, watch the things that he's doing and stuff like that. But with Doug Collins in that situation, I really felt bad for him. That's interesting. And I've really never heard anybody say that. Maybe they don't have, you know, the, the balls, for lack of better terms, to say that about Collins in that situation. And also a lot of people don't know because they weren't there. You know what I mean? A lot of people just look at it and say, well, you know, Kwame was the number one pick and, you know, he didn't pan out the way you think a number one pick would pan out. And I was like, well, there's a whole lot more involved in it than that. You know, if he, 
If he was the number two pick and was in a different situation, we just saw a completely different quality. You know, when, when Tyson Chandler went to the Bulls, and of course, he's a fantastic player, still playing now, but he didn't have any pressure. He didn't have MJ next to him. He didn't have Doug Collins looking to blame him for everything. He could just relax and play. And if Kwame had that kind of a situation, you would have seen a completely different Kwame. Crazy to think about. And and what was what was MJ and Kwame's relationship like? Sorry to keep asking you all these questions about MJ, but very very interesting, you know, stuff here. Oh well, I mean, from what I saw, it was uh, MJ just wanted to win. He just had a competitor, so that's all he was focused on. Um, and you know, his relationship with Kwame looked all right to me. You know, looked like he, you know, pushed him just as much as he pushes everybody else. So I, I don't think that MJ was the problem with that. I think it was more Doug Collins. But I think Doug Collins also, you know, he wanted to protect MJ and protect it. it There's just so much more going on. So Kwame had to take the blame for everything. And it was just, it was a messed up situation for an 18-year-old kid to come into. You know, it really was. It, but, and it probably, it probably scarred him for the rest uh, of his career. Uh, how could it not? I mean, because you don't see that. And I wonder if they're going to show this in the documentary. But really... The way that, you know, I mean, it was just, I, I don't even know how to be, explain it the, some of the times where things wouldn't even be Kwame's fault, but it would just be all on him. And it, it was just like, that's why I said sometimes I would text him. Me and Kwame, we're like the closest on the team. Like, that was my guy. And a lot of it was sometimes I would see it. I was like, man, that's not fair. This is not fair. Why are y'all doing him? You know what I mean? But I think that one of the things that you learn from MJ, and there's so much we learn because we talk about it. You know, because I was there with Tyrone Lou, Tyrone Nesby, you know, uh, Courtney Alexander, Richard Hamilton, and we talked about it. We saw how MJ had that drive and how people changed on him when he didn't have a good game. So I remember one time in particular, um, you know, he played, he didn't play well. We lost. It was really bad. Um, you know, the headlines was like, is MJ too old or should he tarnish his image and things like that? And that very next game was when he had the amazing you know, breaking the record for the oldest person game, uh, like the very next one. And he was sitting there, like, I don't even know if he slept that night, because I believe it was a back-to-back, if my memory serves me correctly. I don't even think he slept. Like, he stayed in the gym and was just working out. And there was, like, um, a few moves that he missed, and he, he must have done the moves at least 100 times, you know what I mean, with no defense. Like, just did it over and over again. Like, he was ready for that next game. So, and I don't even remember who we played the next game. Was it Ah, I, I had to look, go back, and one of the things that we were surprised on, and we was all talking, was like, wow, just a day ago, they were all trashing him, saying that he was terrible, he was old, he should never came back, all this, and in 24 hours, <laughs> now he's back to being MJ the God, you know what I mean? And it's like, so then we started looking at the media. We had a whole conversation amongst ourselves, like, wow, the media will tear you down in a minute if they'll tear down MJ. But we really gained a level of respect for him because, like I said, he didn't have to do none of that. Like, his, his legacy was set. He didn't have to play anymore. And he was playing through so many injuries that people didn't know about. You know, I saw firsthand with the knee draining thing. And it, like I said, he had to do that a lot and keep trying to play. So I gained a lot of respect for him. But it, needless to say, I'm very interested in seeing this documentary someday. Were you at that game where MJ and Kobe went head-to-head where they each put up like 30 to 40 points against each other. You know, they hugged each other on the sideline when they bumped into each other. Can you tell me about that experience if you remember it? Kobe had, like, that was like a, you know, I'm going to show everybody type of a game for Kobe. Like, he was, t- like, he must have told all his teammates, look, 
y'all not getting the ball, so don't even expect it. And they literally didn't look like they expected to get the ball, <laughs> like honestly. And that was like a statement game for Kobe, but then it was like all love and respect. You know what I mean? So it was like both at the same time. And it was funny because I remember hearing uh, Magic talk about MJ having that moment with the Dream Team. And it was like a statement game for him where Magic had to be like, all right, the, the torch is passed, but it was still a respect thing. So it was interesting seeing that same thing happen with Kobe. There was one time where he, you know, he, he fell over him and he was standing there for a minute, you know, and T. Lou came over like, what you doing? You know, but it was all love and he, they came up and they embraced and all that. So it was all a respect thing, but it was, that, that was really amazing to see, you know, I had a good seat on the bench. <laughs> it was amazing to see, you know, front row that happened. That was like, like historical. And kind of relating this to Kobe Bryant, after your career year in 2003-2004, you know, you played two more seasons, then you had a heart condition, which you had to have heart surgery on. Can you go through that surgery, that mentality of getting back to the league? And I believe Kobe Bryant reached out to you or asked you about the heart surgery when you're back on the floor. He did. He did. For me, it was uh, it was terrible timing for me. You know, if, there, if there's ever good timing to have open heart surgery, but it was terrible timing. I was, you know, just coming off. I was you know, had a, had a good rhythm. I was starting everything. And, you know, it was right after the, uh, you know, right before we went to training camp, then I got the news. Okay. You know, I, I had to have heart surgery. So it, it, I felt fine. You know, I didn't feel anything. I felt just fine. Um, but that was the, you know, blessing I've, I've had a um, leaky valve is what it's called since I was younger. So I've always had to have it monitored differently and do things a little differently. So I've always known about it, but it was just the worst time. I was like, I saw like six, experts and specialists i was like okay trying to find somebody to tell me that i'll be okay to play and everybody was like no no man you gotta have a surgery and i was like dang but yeah so that whole process of coming back it was really you know to you know to prove to myself and the people who said that i was done that i could come back so that was that gave me like an extra drive but yeah but talking about kobe and you know this was like a switch so if anybody knew kobe you know when he was younger you know he had a special personality I'll say that, you know, and we had a special personality about him and we had the same agent, um, you know, Arn Tellum before he moved to Rapalinka. And so I saw him all the time when I was younger, we, when he was out there in LA working out. So I saw him like all the time. And so, you know, he had a period of time where he went through some trials and tribulations and stuff. And, you know, there was a change in Kobe. So after I came back from my heart surgery, um, I'm, I'm standing there in the, uh, in the Verizon Center, and it's, it's not called the Verizon Center anymore in D.C., but then it was the Verizon Center. So we were playing the Lakers, and Kobe walked in, then he just turned and made like a beeline right to me. And so he said, you know, you know, he gave me this big hug. And, you know, Kobe's not, he wasn't the hugger, you know, back before that, but he gave me a big hug. He was like, hey, you know, I'm really happy to see that you're doing, that you're doing okay. You know, I've been praying for you you know, from your heart surgery, you know, it's great, stuff like that. So it, it was weird. So, you know, my, my boys was with me. They were like, yeah, I don't know that Kobe, you know what I mean? So, but it was really cool that he did that, but there was a change in him after that. And he was, you know, he's just a different, a different person, but that really did mean a lot for me that he said that. And Eton, to this day, how's the heart? You still condition, you still, uh, you know, keeping tabs on it with doctors and all that stuff? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, so yeah, I keep tabs on everything like that. They, you know, replace my valve and everything. So I'm, I'm good now. I'm good to go. Um, but it's a blessing, you know, it's a blessing that, 
they were able to, you know, monitor me the way that they were because literally I felt nothing. I was ready to come back and, you know, tear the season up, you know what I mean, and build on what I had did from the last season and everything like that. But, you know, it, it's, it's a blessing looking back on it that, you know, we had some good doctors. I still keep in touch with Dr. Telesnik, who was my cardiologist uh, from back then. And, you know, he detected everything. He was the first one that said, ah, wait a minute, let me send you to some other people because I see something here. So I, I really look at it as a blessing. That area where you're the starter on that Wizards team and really, you know, putting in great seasons. Who are some of the, the best big men of your time who gave you the most problems? Shaq. I mean, come on now. I mean, it was, I was like, it was, and the thing about Shaq, honestly, because I just saw this thing where he was saying where, you know, his team could beat the Bulls team and everybody's weighing in. That would have been a pretty good matchup, to be honest with you. I mean, it's not one way or the other. I don't think anybody would have swept anybody, but I think it would have been a fantastic matchup. But really, Shaq was, at that time, when he was like at his peak, he could really hurt people if he wanted to. He's just a nice guy. You know what I mean? So he's playing and stuff and everything and scoring and everything like that. But it, it was almost like you heard people say that about Will. Like he could, if he wanted to, he could injure the person guarding him every single time. And so playing against him, people don't really understand how dominant he really was and how strong he really was. You know, and you're just in there really kind of, you know, fighting for your life down there, trying to trying to guard him or hold him off or push him or something like that. And, you know, so definitely, without a doubt, it, it's, it's Shaq. <laughs> Gilbert Arenas, you know, you spent a bunch of seasons with him. Fans, fans also wanted me to ask this question for you. You know, a run and gun, no pun intended, type NBA style for Gilbert Arenas. We saw what he did in the mid, mid to late 2000s. How does he do today? Oh, Gilbert would have been unstoppable. I mean, people, people don't understand, and they have a short memory of how Gilbert really, you know, how good he really was. I mean, I saw him drop 60-something against Kobe, and Kobe was guarding him most of the time. And then he, you know, took a bow to the crowd. Like, and he was, like, lighting them up. Like, Gilbert, it was, it was, there was so, he was explosive. Like, like, Westbrook, he could shoot like Steph. He was, I mean, it was, you know, he was, in this era right now, I couldn't even imagine, you know, how, how, how well he would, he would do. But, you know, Gilbert was really a special player. We had some really good teams. I mean, some good years, the, the years with Larry Hughes there. And, you know, we, I remember we beat the Bulls one time in the playoffs. Then we ran up against Miami. Uh, we didn't get past them. And then after that, uh, we couldn't get past LeBron. We couldn't get past LeBron in Cleveland. It was like four years in a row. And they were all good series. You know, it would come down to the wire. You know, LeBron would hit some amazing shot at the end or something like that and all the time. It was, but he was – and this was a young LeBron. You know, so when people, you know, of course the debate's going to always come back up. LeBron versus MJ versus Kobe, you know, and I don't even get into that debate, to be honest with you. I mean, I just, I just respect all of them for their individual greatness. And it's all different. Like, they're different players. I mean, I look at LeBron as more like Magic than like Kobe or, you know what I mean, Jordan. I think they're, he's that more type of a player. But, yeah, it, it was, it's amazing. Looking back on it now, and, you know, seeing the players that I, that I was able to be blessed to play against, you know, I tell, I coached my son's AAU team. Uh, shout out to FBCG, Dynamic Disciples. And, um, you know, they'll bring up clips from me. They're like, hey, coach, I saw it. I was watching, you know what I mean, ESPN Classic or something like that and saw you on I was like, yeah, I'll pop up every now and then. But, you know, 
it's, it's just a blessing looking back on it and seeing the players I had the opportunity to play against. So, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely great. So you're an NBA player playing 82 games a season. How do you become an activist, a poet, a writer, a motivational speaker? How do you find time for all that stuff? Well, I mean, the people that knew me growing up, they know that that was kind of always me. So from the time of high school, I mean, I was in a speech and debate in high school and we were, we were winning championships in basketball. We was also winning championships in speech and debate. So that was kind of just my thing. So I was always, you know, speaking about different things that were going on and, you know, and I, now I just start, I'm doing it on a bigger level. So I took it and did it in college and I did it in the pros. So it's kind of just always been me. I mean, the writing part, that's, that's always been me as well in high school. I would write you know, my own speeches, which are called original oratories for you speech and debate people. <laughs> but um, yeah, and debating different topics and things of that nature, that's, that's just always been a passion of mine. So also, I always admired the athletes who use their positions as platforms. And the athletes like Bill Russell and Kareem and Muhammad Ali. So those are athletes that I grew up really admiring. And, um, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to put together a book, uh, We Matter, Athletes and Activism. And I got a chance to interview a lot of the athletes who I grew up admiring, like Craig Hodges and Mahmoud and, um, you know, Bill Russell, Kareem, John Carlos. It was amazing. I, I interviewed Muhammad Ali's daughter. Like, I was like, wow. You know, so it was, it was really a blessing. So it's just something where, you know, you know, I had the opportunity to be able, especially being in D.C., which is a place that is special with uh, political energy. I just had the opportunity to really, you know, kind of kind of push forward with those interests. And, you know, it's a blessing. Etan, on my list here, you know, I have to bring up your book, We Matter. You know, you, you touched on it, but who, who was your favorite interview from it? Oh, wow. You know, there are so many that I that I really enjoyed. I don't know if I could just pinpoint. I mean, Jamel Hill was great. You know, Kareem was fantastic. Bill Russell was amazing because everything was like a story. Um, you know, Eric Reed was great. D Wade was wonderful. Uh, Melo. I mean, it was great. Like, it, I, I mean, there was, I mean, I interviewed Malcolm X's daughter, Eliasha Shabazz. So like, I can't, you know, it's like one of those things where I'm looking back on it and looking at all the names. I'm just like, wow. Like this is like, I grew up with John Carlos's like picture on my wall. Like I'm here in my office and his picture is right here. And I interviewed him for my book, you know? So it's just, you know, some things are just kind of, you know, sombering. Like when you, <laughs> you go back and you look at it, you're like, wow, I really have all these people in my book. So athletes and NBA players more than ever, you know, they use their voice in the media today on social media and all that kind of stuff. What are your thoughts on that? And should more athletes do so? Definitely, you know, there's a definite rich tradition of athletes using their platforms. Um, I always get this question on if it should be a requirement. And I never say that because you can't require somebody to do something if they're not passionate about it. You know, this is like something where if you're going to speak out, because then you have to be able to defend your position because immediately somebody's going to tell you to shut up or dribble or try to like cast you to make you like look like you don't know what you're talking about and you should. So you have to be able to defend what you're saying. I remember when I was in Syracuse and, um, you know, it was my freshman year. And I was speaking out about the, um, the campus security was able to use pepper spray. So the, the thought was and the fear was that they would be pepper spraying all of the, you know, black and brown students a little bit more, you know, because there was like antsy when everything would happen and they would just spray everybody. So I was protesting it. I was at a protest and they captured me like right on the front page. This is my freshman year. And I remember Coach Beheim telling me, you know, he was like, hey, I have no problem with you speaking out, but you got to back it up. 
and you have to be able to defend yourself. You know, he's like, so as long as you could always do that, I have no problem with it. And, you know, it really, I understood what he was saying after I got a lot of backlash from some of the stuff that I would speak out about. And, you know, I experienced it in, in high school a little bit, but a little bit more in college, um, you know, because you have the papers and things like that a little bit more. And, and a lot of people don't, that's what I really saw that a lot of people don't like when you say something that they disagree with. <laughs> So, you know, to, to, to answer your question, yeah, I think players should, you know, athletes should definitely do it, but they have to be prepared for the criticism and they have to be prepared to defend their position. And what advice would you have for a young person wanting to go into activism today? And to speak out, whatever it is. And, I, I, and this is the thing. I'm not somebody who tries to advocate and push for athletes who speak out who agree with me. <laughs> like, that's not the point of wanting you to agree with me. I love debates. I love dialogues. I love debating people who, who I have different opinions uh, with. And, you know, I just value the, the voice of the athlete. And my advice would be, and that's what I've been doing with, with the book, well, before we got coronavirus quarantine, but I was going and speaking at a lot of different universities and really encouraging athletes to use their voices. And, um, you know, that would be really my, my, main, my main message to them is, not to be dissuaded by the criticism and the backlash and be able to defend your position and, and eloquently um, express your opinion. So that's, that's what you have to be able to. It's almost like you have to go into like a speech and debate mode because they're going to come for you and they're going to test your knowledge and you have to be able to express it. And Ethan, I was reading on your website last night about Michael Jordan's unknown activism that you experienced. You know, it had to do with MJ at a golf course and that Jordan wouldn't play there unless they lifted a rule against African Americans. I'm, you know, I, I know it's along those lines. Can you give me that, that exact story? I mean, that's basically what happened. You know, we were sitting there in the, um, in the locker room and, you know, he was telling his story and the, some of the guys around him, you know, one was his bodyguard, one was his trainer and, you know, a couple of guys were all around him and they were telling the story. And I was looking and I was like, oh, wow, that's great. I was like, well, why don't you tell people this? You know, because honestly, you know, whenever, I'm at a, you know, athlete and activism forum or a panel or something like that. MJ is always casted as like the antithesis of the activist athlete because of the statement of Republicans buy shoes too. And that, you know, that's just something he's never going to be able to let down. I, I wish that he would have shown a lot of the things that he does. And I saw firsthand. And I would always say, I was like, yeah, y'all don't know MJ like you think you know MJ. Because people think that he doesn't care at all about the community, doesn't care about anybody else except for, you know, making money. I was like, no, that's not the MJ that I saw. You know, I saw him do incredible things. That's just one of them. I mean, I remember right after 9-11 um, happened, you know, he called uh, somebody over there and he told them, like, listen, I want to, you know, identify family members and victims of 9-11. Um, and I want to donate um, my entire check to these people. I want you to disseminate to, to all of them in particular. And he said, I don't want you to go through any agency. I don't want to go through the, you know, any name like five different agencies. I want it to be directly given to them. And they were like, all right, it's done. And then he left. And, I, and then I didn't hear anything else about it. And I was like, wow, that's amazing right there. Like, why, why? And I asked him one time, I was like, why don't you tell anybody about any of this stuff? And he said, I don't do it for that reason. And I was like, yeah, I know, but everybody thinks that, you know, and he, I was trying to explain to him, and he was just looking at me, he was shaking his head. He was like, you know, almost like he doesn't care what people say. And, and I, you know, it's just, 
there's a whole different side of MJ that people would, you know, don't know about, and it would change how they think of him as a person. There's a picture on your website and, you know, on your Instagram with President Obama. Can you, I think it's at an activism something where you're playing basketball with him. Can you talk about your conversations, your interactions? I was a surrogate for um, President Obama in both um, elections. And so throughout there, you know, before I would go on campaign, I would be speaking different rallies. I would, you know, do different things. And then I became part of his fatherhood initiative after I wrote a fatherhood book. So um, then I did a lot of work with my brother's keeper, which is another one of his organizations. So I was, I would get invited to all the different functions that would happen in DC. So the, I, I just posted on Instagram where, you know, the Easter egg roll, like I, it popped up in my Facebook memories and my kids, you know, they have been, they went to every Easter egg roll for eight straight years. <laughs> so they didn't really know uh, uh, Easter that came around with no Easter egg roll. <laughs> so it was like weird to them. But, um, you know, looking at all the different pictures and things like that, I was like, wow, yeah. So, yeah, that's, this is all that you guys know. But I've had so many different, you know, conversations with, um, I keep always calling, I'm always calling President Obama. But um, it was funny because the way that began was when he was in Chicago. And he was, if people remember Alan Keyes, I was really against Alan Keyes. I just didn't agree with a lot of his, nothing personal, I just didn't agree with a lot of his stances. And um, uh, a young Barack Obama at that time was running against him. And so I supported him um, because I didn't agree with Alan Keyes. And that's, that was the initial um, interaction with him. And then from there, it just kind of built. And, you know, then I became an actual surrogate. And then I've been, you know, they sending me out to different places to speak. Uh, on his behalf during the campaign trail and things of that nature. And, and I didn't agree with President Obama on everything. You know, I have a list of things that we disagreed upon. But I, I will say that I, I do miss having a president that could actually make people feel that you at least are trying to go to the right path of something, um, you know, during a pandemic. I think that he would have handled <laughs> what we're in right now completely differently. I mean, I watched the, and I'm not going to get too far into politics, but I watched the, um, you know, the, the addresses that Trump has right now, and I leave there every time I watch it, like, what, what is happening? Like, what is going to happen to us? You know what I mean? Like, it, it's just, it, it's interesting seeing, you know, being up close to it, because even if you don't agree with one of President Obama's stances, you at least saw how he got there. And it at least made sense to him the way, and you know, you could just fundamentally disagree with it but it at least makes sense they're like a, a plan looks like it's in place like this is what he's trying to do so you know i don't i don't feel that we necessarily have that right now <laughs> anytime tell me about espn center of attention and you know how it started what you're doing today with it and some guests that you've had on other other than myself of course oh well, you've been the best guest so you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> but i mean it's been it's been great you know doing a lot of things with with um, you know, really focusing on Syracuse athletics, and they give me the you know flexibility to go outside the box. I'm not just focusing on Syracuse, you know, completely. I mean, we did a lot. I mean, we probably did more than they've ever done on at ESPN Syracuse as far as touching on different topics. Um, you know, there's a big thing if you remember that uh, on Syracuse's campus, there's a lot of racial incidents that happened last semester, and I mean, I've had like five different students on. And we talked about it and I wanted to get their perspective and get their voice out there and push them. And, you know, I mean, it's just 
that's not something that probably would have happened, you know, but I, I have a, I have other interests and passions. So they kind of let me kind of do my thing. Um, so yeah, no, we've had, we've had great guests, um, you know, from Chris Bussard to, you know, um, I mean, I could go down the whole list of, of people that we've had, but I think that one of the things that were, was happening now where a lot of programs are cutting down what they're doing, uh, we moved to Twitch until, you know, after the coronavirus, um, you know, pandemic gets took to turn or whatever, and they start bringing programs back. So now we're doing the same thing um, on Twitch and, you know, it's fun to do. I mean, while you're quarantined, you know, there's so many people who have so many great things to talk about and great things to say and great things to, of discussions. And, you know, you don't want to have the same replays that you're looking at in different channels all the time. That's why I love what you're doing so well. And I love how you keep everybody abreast of things that are happening. And, you know, the new, the, the news with like, um, you know, different high school athletes that are going to the G league and going, I mean, that's like a huge topic. So I'm going to have like, um, you know, two of the Fab Five on next week, and I'm going to have Jim, Jimmy Jackson on. We're going to talk about it. I'm going to have, you know, it's, 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 there's a lot to still talk about. And so I appreciate what you do. I told you about that in January. You know, you have a program, you have a good passion, and, um, you know, it's quality. It's quality program. Etan, I mean, listen, from a professional player, I, I really appreciate all those kind words. And two Fab Five members, I mean, I might as well hit it now. Where can we find Centers of Attention? Is it on YouTube? Where can you find it on social media? Twitch. I'll start, I'll be posting on my, on my um, you know, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, but it's on Twitch. And so, you know, yeah, I can't wait to talk to Jimmy King and Ray Jackson. I mean, those are, those are my guys. And, um, you know, it, whenever anything happens with, with, with college athletics, I always go to them too. Those are, those are my guys. And it was, it was cool. Um, in my book, I interviewed, you know, the whole Fat Five. And, you know, I remember being in high school, reading their book. And that was when I really started looking at it different economically um you know because of their expressions of it and i know when they were freshmen they was just all having a great time and having a blast and you know they're all freshmen and everything like that but then their sophomore year they always they all talked about wait a minute they're looking around they're like okay they're making all this money off of us um you know we, we're looking at the books and how we're on tv all the time you know they're selling our jerseys they're selling our you know poster everything like that but we have no money like zero money at all like you know Chris Webber was talking about how he couldn't even take a girl on a date you know because he had no money and so that just kind of opened my eyes so whenever these kind of conversations come up um I always go back to them and want to talk to them about it but yeah it's a blessing to have this kind of platform back to your NBA career in your in one of your final seasons you spent time in Oklahoma City with the young trio of Kevin Durant James Harden Russell Westbrook tell me about your time with them and did you expect them all to become MVPs I thought that they were going to be really good. I mean, I think after that year, I even wrote an article, I think it was for Hoops Hype, that said that this team is going to be the team of the future if they keep them all together. And, you know, Serge Ibaka, you can't forget him, and Jeff Green, they had a crew of young players. And they should have kept them all together. That's it. That's, you know, they should have kept them all together, and they would have won at least one or two championships, you know, by now. And it's it's interesting because they were so young. like. James Harden was a, a rookie. And I remember James Harden coming up to me uh, and he shook my hand. He said, uh, nice to meet you, sir. I grew up watching you. I was like, 
me and you grew up watching me, you know, but then I had to do the math. I was like, oh yeah, okay, I guess, you know, these cats are young. He's like 19 coming out, right? And, you know, I'm in my thirties and yeah, he must've grown up watching me, but they were so young and so raw. Serge Ibaka was like so young and everything like that, but you could see the talent and it really, you know, it, it, it's one of the biggest could have been stories of a team because I really think they would have had something special. Um, you know, Kevin Durant is a special, they're, they're all special players. They should have, they should have, they should have kept them all together. That's all I can say. However much it costs. I mean, listen, three MVPs on one team. Yeah. Oof. However you got to get it done, you got to get it done. <laughs> Anytime to finish, favorite teammate and why in your NBA career? Ooh, that's a tough one. I don't know if I could even do that. I could just give a top five. You know what I mean? I don't know if I could give like a favorite teammate because I had so many great teammates. Um, you know, one thing, I, and I, I just told this story about watching uh, Kevin Durant work out. And, and watching how he's the only player who I ever saw that a coach tell him, okay, that's enough. Go home. That's enough working out. Take the balls from him. You know what I mean? I've never seen that happen before, but I literally saw Scott Brooks tell him to go home <laughs> one time after he was working. That's how hard he was working out. That was like amazing to me. <laughs> I tell my, my AAU guys that all the time. Um, you know, he's, yeah, that, he's, he's that good for a reason. You know, a lot of times people – People see people and they see the finished product, but they don't know what it has, what it takes to get them there. You know, I mean, even with Gilbert Arenas. Now, Gilbert Arenas was interesting because he didn't want people to know he was working hard. It was weird. So he would come up to the gym like at odd hours, you know, <laughs> like, like at like 11 o'clock at night or like 3 o'clock in the morning or something like that and just be working out. And he worked out hard. And there was a reason why he was as good as, as, he, as he was. He just didn't want anybody to know about it. Weird thing. I don't know. Can't call it, you know, but yeah, I've, I've been blessed to play with a lot of, a lot of great, incredible players. So I can go down a whole list. We can do a whole other show with just me going through different people who I enjoyed playing with. Anytime. I remember reading in the NBA buzz comments, a bunch of people wanted me to ask you, you know, after MJ and even during MJ's time, you played on some very strong teams. Why couldn't those teams, like you mentioned earlier, running into LeBron, um, you know, the Heat at that time with Wade and I think Shaq was on that team. What was it that you guys couldn't get over the hump? Were you missing a piece? That year that we ran into Shaq and them and Zoe and D-Wade, that was just a good team. I mean, we, we, we beat a, a, a really good Bulls team, the Bulls team with Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry and all of them, and that was a hard-fought series. Then we ran into, you know, Miami after that. I mean, the, 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 the games that we played against – Cleveland, those are good, good teams. I mean, it was LeBron, and it was he was he was young LeBron, but he was still LeBron. And you know what we're looking at is interesting because, you know, my son he plays he plays two K all the time, right? So I'm playing with him sometimes, and he plays that that Wizards team is on there, so he's beating me with me. You know what I mean? Which is the weirdest thing on earth. But he was like, "Yeah, y'all had a crew, man." Uh, we were just having this conversation, like he was like, "Man, y'all should have." Y'all should have made it further. Y'all should have got to the Eastern Conference Finals. Y'all should have. I was like, yeah, bro, I know. Meanwhile, he's dunking on me with me. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm trying to play with the all-time Lakers and stuff, and he's playing with the Wizards team lighting me up. But, yeah, those are fun times. <laughs> Anytime. Where can we find you on social media? You know, tell me your ads. Tell me your website and where we can find centers of attention. Cool. So my my um, Twitter is, is at thomas 36 Same as my Instagram. Um, my my website is just thetimethomas.com. 
you know, I keep it simple. So everything on Twitter is just a time topic. So I mean, on Twitch. Um, so it, I keep it simple. But yeah, I'm gonna keep on doing it. He's more than an athlete. The great Eton Thomas. Eton, really, thank you for coming on and giving me solid half hour to 45 minutes of just just great conversation. I really, really appreciate it. No problem at all. Thanks for having me.